The Thriving Over Surviving podcast is for informational and inspirational purposes and not meant to be medical advice. Please consult your physician for any medical issues you may be facing. The opinions expressed by guests and advertisers are their own and not necessarily the opinions of Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Little did Rachel and I know when we began our conversation that we would end up chatting so long. Literally enough content for three episodes. So this is part one of Rachel's interview. Enjoy. So I had like a cardiology workup. Everything was negative. I did my own research, presented it to the cardiologist, like evidence-based research. And there are a couple of case studies. Typically, they were women, typically in their 30s, and typically with MS that were receiving like the the burst or the pulse high-dose steroids. And they had an atypical response to the steroids that ended up with extreme bradycardia. And I'm one of those. So... Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? HSCT and other forms of stem cell therapy are becoming more and more popular as researchers complete trials and those with multiple sclerosis seek ways to live a full and productive life without physical limitations. Well, Rachel Rhodes, my guest today, is one of those people. Three years ago, it seemed like she was living at the hospital. Two years ago, she underwent plasmapheresis, which that's a whole nother story. Last year, she found herself depressed and fatigued and isolated from friends and family. Currently, she's working full-time, playing the role of wife and mom, and getting stronger mind, body, and soul. Let's chat it up with Rachel. Hi, Rachel. How are you today? I am lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. How are you? I am well. Um, a little tired. And this is going to date the episode, but I went to a show at the Improv last night, Christina Pajitsky, which, yeah, it was great. So I'm a little tired today. I'm definitely seeing a nap in my future. But yeah, naps are beautiful. I'm just super excited to have you here today. Back in episode two, I interviewed Cassidy and Julie, who both had stem cell therapy, and they introduced me to you. And so I thank them for that. I wanted to give them a little shout out. I love them. But tell us, 2018, you were diagnosed, and you say unexpectedly with MS. That must have been a surprise. Will you share with us about that story? So December 6, 2018 is etched in my memory probably forever. My youngest was four months old. I was you know, doing the postpartum recovery thing. Prior to getting pregnant with her, I was training for a marathon throughout all that time. And I didn't mean to, but I have the shirt on right now. The um, Seattle Marathon in 2017, I had trained through my, through the summer for that, and then ended up getting pregnant six weeks before said marathon and completed it while, while dealing with like hyperemesis, because that's how my pregnancies roll. And 
basically I was just like, you know, I was vibrant, full of life. I didn't have any, anything, nothing seemed off. Like I was in the best health I'd been in, in years and life was really good. And then I had a bit of a difficult pregnancy with some weird stuff that happened in it. Like after, you know, with my third pregnancy, but before my diagnosis and looking back retrospectively and looking back at brain MRIs, my neurologist is pretty sure that some of those complications in my pregnancy were actually my first MS relapses. So not normal, not at all normal here because usually we'll go into remission if we're um, pregnant. And then I was breastfeeding exclusively, which typically will hold you in remission and had two relapses within four months. Um, I lost feeling in my big toe immediately postpartum, but I attributed that to the ankle injuries I had sustained from doing that marathon. So I didn't really think much of it. I was like, oh, whenever I get a little more recovered and running more, I'll go see an orthopedist, but like not a huge deal. And I, I actually went for my first ankle MRI like five days before I was diagnosed and didn't go to my follow-up because I was in the hospital with my relapse. But so, so anyways, all that is to say like I was in fairly good like standard American health. And I had no idea that there was anything weird happening because everything that had gone wrong in my pregnancy was chalked up as hypotension and bradycardia that are secondary to me being like a distance runner. So anyways, I woke up on December 6th after going to bed, feeling like my blood sugar was really low and like feeling off and, and like not cognitively in control, I guess the night before, which I now know is my aura for an MS relapse coming up. Like, you know, in seizures, we talk auras and that's kind of like my, my MS relapse aura is that I start to feel like my blood sugar is really low. I'm super, super hungry, really tired and just, just like not quite fully disoriented, but not in great control of my facilities. So I woke up the next morning, nursed my baby like normal because she was in the bassinet next to my crib, got up around 6.30 to start getting the day ready for like packing school lunches, pack, making coffee, making lunches for work, all that stuff. And the living room in my house, I have to cross it to get to the bathroom. And it felt like I was in a fun house. Like I couldn't make sense of what was going on. And so then I get in the bathroom and like not to be super TMI, but as I'm pulling my pants down, my underwear were like blending in with my pants and like shifting the the vision that I was seeing was like shifting. And I'm like, what is going on? So I didn't have my glasses on yet for the morning. And so I'm like rubbing my eyes really hard and trying to squint thinking that it's just because I've got a four month old, I'm back to work and you know, two other kids and life is crazy and I'm tired. But then I got up no glasses on. And as I'm washing my hands, I'm looking in the mirror and I couldn't quite tell what was wrong with my eyes, but something was wrong with my eyes. Like they didn't look correct. And so I'm still only, you know, half awake, go into the kitchen to begin making breakfast and coffee and all that. And I'm trying to figure out what time, like if it's time to wake my daughter up yet. And I'm looking at the digital readout on the microwave and I couldn't comprehend what I was looking at. Like the digits were there, but they didn't make sense to me. And I'm an RN who is a stroke like certified RN. And I was like, oh my God, I'm having a stroke. Like, you know, in that moment, it hit me that everything we educate a patient on when they leave the hospital about like reasons to call 911, I was experiencing all of them. 
I yelled for my husband and we rushed to the nearest hospital that has a neurologist on staff. And I had called my friends who work critical care, who are RNs as well. And we were doing like assessment for like a stroke workup and NIHSS assessment via the phone on the way to the hospital. And I was sure that I was having a stroke and it was affecting my optic nerve. And that's what was going on. I get to the ER and within minutes of the stroke workup, the physician that was seeing me was like, I don't think this is a stroke. I think this is demyelination. And my vision was affected. My balance was affected and my cognition was affected. Like, obviously those were the obvious things up front. So he ordered the stroke work up and then ordered a stat brain MRI with him without contrast. And like, I knew something was wrong when I came out of that MRI because the same MRI technician that helped me into the machine helped me out. And though they can't technically diagnose, you know, they know what they're looking at. And I, her whole demeanor changed from the time that she assisted me in to the time that she assisted me out. And sure enough, within an hour, I got the heads up that I likely had MS and that we were going to do a spinal tap to confirm. And that was that. And so, you know, I didn't have the story. Like I've talked to quite a few people who told me about they couldn't get a diagnosis for years because they had all of these different isolated symptoms that didn't necessarily warrant that kind of like ER visit right away. So they didn't get to have the immediate diagnosis. But for me, it was hours that I went from having no idea that something was off to boom, here's your diagnosis, here's your future. And the way that it was presented to me by the neurologist who did not specialize in MS, as well as the hospitalist, you know, they didn't have the newer information. And so they didn't give me a whole lot of hope from the start. That's a really quick diagnosis. I'm finding that as I talk to people who were diagnosed recently, that the diagnosis is coming more easily and people, the neurologists are starting to, doctors are starting to recognize what it looks like. I'll say even like from the professional standpoint, and I can't talk into too much detail, but even with us not having a neurologist on staff, like I see neurological things questioned for weird situations. Whereas I think even a handful of years ago, like, you know, five, seven years ago, it was maybe not, people weren't maybe taken as seriously. So yeah, I absolutely agree. It seems like the awareness is definitely increasing within in the medical field. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, I hate that anyone has to go through it, but I'm grateful that it seems to be more accessible to get the, the help we need. And you having that medical background too, sure did help. Oh my goodness. Because, you know, you recognize some of those things. I'm glad it wasn't a stroke, but I, you know, it, I don't know, stroke, multiple sclerosis. What are we looking at here? I honestly, like, I, I wished it had been a stroke because I knew, I knew what was going to happen if it was a stroke. Like that was a very controlled thing because it would be an isolated incident. I knew what to expect as far as the hospital stay. I knew that I would have to go through probably acute rehab to work on trying to gain back. But I also knew I was in the window that I'd receive a medication that would potentially reverse a lot of the effects of it. So I was good when I thought it was a stroke. 
And whenever the doctor told me he thought it was demyelination, it was like, you know, my stomach turned to ice. Whenever I actually received the results of my MRI, it was a different doctor by that point because I had already been admitted. She came in, my husband was not in the room because he had ran home to get the four month old. Whenever we like left the house in a rush, thankfully his mom lives next door to us. So she came over like that and watched the kids, but I needed to nurse. He ran home to get the baby and he walks back in the door and the physician is giving me this, hey, we're pretty sure you have MS. And I just started wailing. And so he walked in the door of my hospital room to me, I mean, like a guttural, like animal, just cry coming out of me. MS felt like a lot when I was diagnosed. It felt like a whole lot, a lot worse than a stroke. So how did you get from that point when you're in the hospital, right? And you're feeling all of this to deciding, because it seems really quick to me to decide to then go and do the HSCT. What led you up to that? So when I was in the hospital, I told like, I told the neurologist and I think she thought I was in denial. I was like, I don't accept this. This isn't the future that I'm going to take. So thanks, but no thanks. Like the best you have to offer me is Copaxone because I was breastfeeding and, and I'm very passionate about breastfeeding. So I'm, you know, like in the hospital bed stuck in there for, it was like five or seven days. I don't remember. And I'm reading as much as I possibly can about MS and trying to make my game plan my initial MRI had a couple of active areas, but also a lot of old lesions that were no longer active. And so they were like, oh, you've likely had MS for years. It's been so mild. You haven't noticed it. You're just having your first, like, you know, the postpartum relapse is usually the worst. So th that's why things are so bad. And you're going to go back into remission, especially since you're breastfeeding and everything's going to be okay. And it's a mild case. Like, that's what I was told. So I was like, cool, Copaxone's got like a 30 some percent effect, efficacy, sorry, efficacy rate. Not so sure about this medication, but like being a bedside nurse, I see people repeatedly utilizing medications in lieu of making lifestyle changes for chronic health conditions. It's definitely something that's on your radar once you go to work in healthcare, whenever you see the same things over and over and over again without any effort to maybe take a different path. So I was like, okay, MS is like all the rest of that. Like I've got to be able to life hack my way out of this. So initially I thought that I would get even stricter with my lifestyle and make a bunch of changes and that I'd be fine because I had this mild case of MS. And three months later, I was, you know, after I was home for a month with that relapse, I had my solumedrol in the hospital, like the grandma day of solumedrol, which for people who aren't in healthcare, a grandma day is a crap ton of IV steroids. All my friends with MS or any other autoimmune conditions that get these steroids and we're wondering why we get so bloated and so hungry and so angry and so like not ourselves, that is a lot of steroids. So anyways, I do my, I do my grandma day of steroids, get discharged home. Symptoms are like, you know, moderately in check at that point once the inflammation went down. And the first night home, my 
and I'm not saying this like to like throw him under the bus or anything, but my husband had a couple beers before bed because God, he's been dealing with a four month old plus a four year old and a nine year old by himself while his wife just got this like life changing diagnosis and is in the hospital. Like, you know, so we had a couple beers before going to bed since I was home, home and safe. And I, I, preface with this so I can tell you the rest of the story. So I woke up to the baby needing to be nursed at about 1.30 in the morning and my heart hurt. And when I, I had the high pain tolerance and when I say my heart hurt, it felt like my heart was beating into a concrete wall with every heartbeat. Nurse brain, I'm like, I need to check my heart rate. I'm probably in ventricular tachycardia as a result of the steroids that I just finished having. So I'm thinking that that's what's going on. I looked down at my watch that measures heart rate, expecting it to say like 175 and it said 32. And I was like, the 32 beats per minute. And so I quickly like manually checked my pulse and sure enough, it was 32 beats per minute. And that's not, that's not a normal bradycardic range, especially for someone that just finished the round of steroids that we go through in a relapse. So my husband's asleep. He can't drive me to the hospital. I don't want to freak him out again because like I'm able to, you know, do like an assessment on myself and tell that I'm still alive and I'm not circling the drain. So I'm like, what do I do? Um, not, and then like the other part of me is I didn't want to go via ambulance to the, I won't go down that route. I just didn't want to deal with all that at two in the morning. So I got up after feeding the baby and I started pacing the floor. And I paced the floor that whole entire night because every time I sat down, my heart rate would drop back into the 30s. But if I stayed up pacing, it stayed in the 40s. And so I told one of my nurse friends this the next morning when she got up at around five and by like 8 a.m. She had one of our doctor friends on the phone with me like you're going to the hospital. There's no ifs, ands or buts. So I had like a cardiology workup. Everything was negative. I did my own research, presented it to the cardiologist, like evidence based research. And there are a couple of case studies. Typically, they were women typically in their thirties and typically with MS that were re receiving like the, the burst or the pulse high dose steroids. And they had an atypical response to the steroids that ended up with extreme bradycardia. And I'm one of those. So yeah, I was back in the hospital for like four days after, after the first round. And we found out that steroids aren't an option for me anymore because. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wait, stop for just a second. <laughs> that is super crazy because, you know, we live on those. I mean, I've done the Axinar gel. I, I like it because I don't get the symptoms. I mean, I, I don't get the symptoms of the steroids, but it doesn't really reduce what I'm dealing with in terms of the MS very well. So tell us about what you're doing. Wow. Steroids were off the table. I still hadn't seen an MS specialist, but I'm like trying all these different things. Like maybe I need to go vegan. Maybe I need to, you know, do this, that, and the other, like trying all this lifestyle stuff. And I'm feeling better. Like I'm dropping the baby weight like crazy. I'm feeling more energetic. At this point, like just a couple months after the relapse, you can't tell that anything ever happened. We've put this out of our mind. I've decided I'm not going to take Copaxone for sure. Like I'm just going to live this awesome lifestyle because I've got mild MS, right? So anyways, about three and a half months, I think it was after this all happened, I'm 
at work and my MS, what I think are residual symptoms from relapse number one are getting worse and worse to the point where like I'm a bedside, I was a bedside nurse at the time. I'm having to like pull myself down the hall using the handrails, my legs, my quad would spasm, couldn't sit like by the end of a shift, you know, we work 12 hour shifts. I couldn't sit up. I would be so weak and that would be spasming so bad that I'd have to sit on the floor to give handoff report. Like, you know, I was just really struggling, but I kept telling everybody like, oh, it's a season change. You know, I've got this under control. I've got mild MS. There's no way I'm having a relapse. I just finished steroids not too long ago. I'm breastfeeding. I'm doing all this stuff. So I never went to the neurologist for that one. And that was a really rough couple months, (laughs) let me tell you. But, you know, I made it through whatever. That was in like, I think like April-ish. And then over the summer, things went back into remission. Life seemed fine. And then I went on vacation with my mom and my kids to Moab and like I hiked all over Moab while carrying a baby on my back. And like, I've got pictures of me nursing said baby while hiking through like Arches National Park and stuff like that. And I was just like totally embracing life. And again, in my mind, MS is not a thing anymore. Like, cause I've got it under control. I'm eating the strict diet. I'm running five times a week. I'm doing yoga that's helped me with my neuropathy and helped me with my like just altered sensations in my foot that it had occurred before getting diagnosed and just kind of lingered. Like I'm doing all these things and I'm feeling really, really good. And then it was, we stopped at my sister's house in Denver on the way home. And I was like, I told my sister, I'm like, I think I'm starting to feel the way I felt six months ago. Like I feel like there might be an MS relapse coming on. So now we're only like, six months, seven months post-diagnosis, something like that. I think it was about seven months. And it built up for a couple weeks and then it laid the hammer down like really, really good. And so by the end of August, I worked through the month of August only because I was precepting a new hire who was an experienced nurse. So she was able to do all the physical work for me. And all I had to do was tell her how to like do the documentation and what the codes were and all that kind of stuff. I went to my neurologist at that time and she ordered an MRI. I got the results back a couple of weeks later and I was all lit up like a Christmas tree, of course. And so whenever we reviewed those results, she sat down and she was like, listen, I understand that breastfeeding is important to you, but my job is to save your brain. And at the rate we're going, there's not going to be much brain left to save. So it's time to make a tough decision. That was like the last week of August or the first week of September in 2019. So I'm freaking out because I don't like, I'm not pro pharmaceutical for long-term things in general. That's just my personal conviction, which um, I probably shouldn't have said that aloud based on what my career is, but that's just me. Like, I'm like, Hey, you have something going on, you handle it. And, and we use medications to get us through, but like, I hadn't yet wrapped my mind around what MS really was like, you know, this had all been really fast and I'm dealing with a newborn. So I hadn't, I hadn't recognized like the gravity of what I had going on yet. And so to be told, like, you've got to pick one of these. And at the point, because whenever I had my new MRI, like in late August. Of course, it showed more lesions that weren't present on my December MRI because I'd been relapsing back in the spring, but, you know, just pretended like it wasn't happening. So, so it was very clearly obvious that my disease was not this mild course that 
that they had given me hope for and that instead it was highly active because again, I was still exclusively breastfeeding through all of this. So she gives me the options of Tysabri and Ocrevus are where she wants to start at because I told them that it was, I intermittent, I was intermittent fasting and that was really important to me because I was seeing huge systemic benefits, not just in my gut health, but like it was helping with mental clarity, it helped with my energy levels. And I'm like, I don't really want to have to take a medication every morning that's going to have to be taken with food that I'm going to have to remember to take while I'm getting kids ready for school and daycare and all that stuff. So the options that she was interested in, as far as oral medication, she's like, you're going to be a person that can't miss a dose. So oral medication's not on the table for you. So we're looking at Ocrevus or however you say it and Tysabri. And I was like, all right, let's, you know, we'll talk about this. And I, I had brought up to her at that point, I was like, Hey, so as I've been reading, there's this thing called HSCT, like I'm kind of interested in that. And she was like, honestly, that might end up being an option for you, but let's go ahead and talk about this for now. And so I went and stayed with my sister for a few days to sit down and do all my reading. Cause I'm a total nerd whenever it comes to health stuff. And I'm digging through all these like peer reviewed, you know, journal articles and, and digging through all the four provider stuff on the medications that she's given me the option for. And then HSCT is also in the back of my mind. And I'm like, you know, I just really don't love either of these whenever I compare it to HSCT, like HSCT, when we're looking at long-term remission and when we're talking about side effects, knowing that I'm a person that has really interesting side effects to medications, HSCT is, is looking better. But I have been screened for the JC virus back when I was first diagnosed and I was negative. So I went to my neurologist and I was like, let's let's do this. We'll talk about HSCT once my kids are a little bit older, but for now let's do Tysabri, assuming that I am JC negative because they were going to recheck me, of course. So tell the listeners, please, what is JC virus? So JC virus is the super benign virus that a lot of us have had at some point in our life, but we don't even really usually have symptoms from it. And it's no big deal for the average person. Like, Anybody, you know, it's it's just a virus. It's called the John Cunningham virus is like the actual, what JC stands for. But if you are a person who is going to utilize a medication that closes the blood brain barrier, such as Tysabri, or that leaves you super immunocompromised, the JC virus has a chance if, if you've had it in the past and you show a positive, like especially a higher positive titer to it, like higher proof that your immune system has encountered this and this is a thing that that it deals with that virus can go absolutely bananas on your brain it gets it's in your it'll get up there in your brain and if your blood brain barriers closed your immune system like in the good way because we close that blood brain bar barrier with tysabri because the immune system has been acting naughty and having a party in the brain that it's not supposed to have but in the case of the JC virus, you want that barrier open so that the immune system can actually do what it's supposed to do, which is go after that virus and shut it down. So if you have a positive titer, there's always a slight risk that you could have the very unfortunate outcome of basically becoming vegetative, like a permanent vegetative state as a result of that positive titer and, and that medication use. And so I had told her that if I was JC positive, 
I didn't want to start Ty Sabri because your, your level can rise over time. It does not for everybody, but for some people it can. And you go through very regular checks of that level in order to keep receiving the medication. But I just didn't even want to go down that path if that was a potential risk, because then we've got to go back to the drawing board at the end of it. And so sure enough, wasn't JC positive back in December, but by September I am. Yay! So now Ty Sabri's off the table. And I mean, she was willing to still administer it. And I, I had the t conversation with them, with, with her nurse. And I was like, so here's the deal. I've already made the decision that I'm going to get HSCT. I've got people that are willing to make it happen quickly. I can move that up a little bit. What if we do a couple doses of Ty Sabri to shut this immune system down? And then I go get HSCT a little bit sooner than I had already planned. The nurse for my neurologist was like, so the thing is, whenever you come off Tysabri, we've had this closed, but it hasn't done anything to really like, you know, keep the immune system from wanting to get back in. So once you open that door, it's like the floodgates are being opened and the immune system just gets to go in. So the usual wow. way that we avoid that, that is avoided is by utilizing those high doses of steroids that I <laughs> that you cannot take. Yeah, that's right. So, cause I was like, you know, we discussed all, I was like, I, I could potentially stay in the hospital throughout the course. And then for some like continued observation of high dose steroid, you know, we were just playing around with everything. And, and we discussed taking, well, let's talk Ocrevus then. And the nurse is like, so again, Ocrevus has to be a split first two doses. And for someone with a highly active presentation of the disease, steroids are used until you get therapeutic with that. So that's not really a great option. So maybe like, what's the story with HSCT? Do we really want to look into HSCT? And I was like, that's all I needed to hear. I'll be going to Mexico in a few months. And so um, I went home and submitted my application to uh, Clinica Ruiz in Puebla, as well as the program with Dr. F Frederico, Frederico um, in Moscow, Russia. And I was going to go to whoever could get me in first. And Clinica Ruiz responded back a couple days later. I was at the zoo with my family, trying to pretend like life was normal, even though I was struggling to, to walk. And they sent me back the, you know, tentative acceptance with the list of dates. And so I was standing next to the children's barn at the zoo whenever I chose my date for January 6th, 2020. All of that kind of transpired in the course of you know, it, it had been going on for seven months, eight, seven, no, 10 months at that time. We were 10 months or nine months in at that time, something like that. But it didn't really get intense until that last month. And it was like, there wasn't, it, it, there wasn't time to second guess because it was obvious that it was that serious. Like I, sh I was supposed to be using a cane, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to overcome this thing. And, and I'm not like, I'm totally for assistive devices and I am, I love adaptability. Like I, I, I think it's hugely important, but each of us has a different, you know, set of previous life experiences and each of our journey is different. And for me, I was like, I am not stopping because the, the future goals that I have do not mesh with a cane. And I'm not ready to give those up yet. Like I was not, I was clinging on to too much 
to be able to go to that point. But anyway, so that's, that's how HSCT got chosen. And four months later I went. And in that time I had another relapse and I was on Akthar, like two or three rounds of Akthar, which only took my heart rate down to 38 instead of 32, but still didn't get me out of the relapses and still didn't get me out of the symptoms. Wow. So that's a lot. I think that the fact that, like I said before, you're in the medical community and that you're such an active person, right? Beforehand, it's just not, not acceptable. Not acceptable. It was not an option. So you're, you're doing the HSCT. Now, where did you end up going for that? I ended up going to Clinica Ruiz to the Puebla, Mexico location. And did you go by yourself? So my husband ended up coming with me. We couldn't quite figure out what the best choice was going to be, but my sister came and watched my kids for the first couple of weeks. And then they stayed with his mom the second couple of weeks and he came with me the whole time. So it was, it worked out really, really well. It's nice to have that other person with you because now I see people going through that and they can't have anybody and it's, that's really tough. So when you were going through that whole process, I'm just thinking like you couldn't do steroids. Is there a protocol with steroids for HSCT? Typically steroids are utilized to mitigate the side effects of the chemotherapy and you take them daily mm -hmm. throughout the process. I just didn't have them. So I maybe was a little more miserable <laughs> than other people were and didn't have the super energy that they had, but it, you know, it was all part of the process and you just trust it. Yeah. And so you left there and have you had a relapse since this, since the HSCT? I, what's today? Today's the 19th. So I am one day away from being one year, 11 months or yeah, one day, January 20th, 2020. So a day away from being a year and 11 months post that was whenever I had the um, transplant of my new immune system that doesn't have the memory of my myelin. And I was, you know, relapsing about every three months. And then my, actually the day that I started chemo, I woke up that, I went to bed feeling that aura type feeling, woke up the next morning and my bicep was doing this. So that was new, but it was really cool because chemotherapy shut it down like three hours. And it, it didn't do that the whole time. Like I got to where I could hold it down, but it was trying to, it was like having clonus in my bicep, but chemotherapy shut it down within a couple hours. So it was cool. Good. Cause that's a major spasm. <laughs> I mean, gosh, I can't imagine. And that's the same quality that I have in my right quad, right flexor. So I don't have it often anymore. Actually, I woke it up yesterday. Mm -hmm. If I do really, really hard workouts, I'm finding out that I can wake it up, but it's great because I get to have like that fleeting memory of how far I've come and what I've experienced and endured. And then I go eat a really good meal and take a nap and I wake up and I go for a run and life is fine. But you know, like your body enough to say, this is what I need so that I can do this next thing. So many of us, including I am one of those people, didn't know that stuff. It's amazing how much we can learn as a result of this. 
I go online and I see these things, but every time I talk to someone, I'm learning so, so much. And that is really a gem for me. The listeners, I'm sure, are tuning in to hear all this great stuff too. So from talking about the HSCT in that journey in and of itself and, and deciding what that was going to look like for you. Tell people, please, Rachel, where they can find you because they're going to want to reach out. So if you'd like to reach me, um, I'm probably on Instagram most often. And that is at try, but try is spelled T-R-I because, you know, triathlons. So it's at try underscore two underscore recover underscore from underscore MS. So at try to recover from MS with underscores in between each word. And then also, if you're interested in my HSCT journey, I created a group on Facebook as I went through it and I don't update it super often now, but if you search audios MS hyphen Rachel's with like an apostrophe S, Rachel's HSCT journey to Puebla. You can check out what it was like for me getting HSCT. And I am a former bedside RN. So I maybe went into more detail than sometimes people do with it because I would, you know, want people to kind of understand like, this is what this medication is for. And that's what we're getting done today. So you can always look that up. And then you can email me at holisticnurse kc at gmail.com. I do want to remind everyone um, listening about our MS walk in Orlando on April 2nd at Blue Jacket Park. So the link tree in my Instagram bio and the Thriving Over Surviving podcast website have all those details, including location. Um, We're going to do one or two events that day and how to get a t-shirt. So also, if you're interested in digging a little deeper to determine your core values, please visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. And there you'll be guided through that discovery process because we all deserve really to live our best lives and recognizing what those core values are and living into them has changed my life in a tremendous way, especially after being diagnosed with MS. And so we want to bring all of that to you. So thank you again, Rachel, for being here with me. Uh, Please keep thriving. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Keep thriving. Keep thriving.